and welcome to the second episode of Hunting for Candle Ends. This week we have an interview with Les Claypool. We have more of Mike's look back at 2012 in movies, and a couple of hasty recommendations from me, and then as always, we go out with a song. You know, a long time ago, a friend of mine was mad at me and she said, Neil, you always ask really stupid questions. I asked another friend, do I really ask stupid questions all the time? And he said, yes, you do, and that's something we really like about you. So, in that spirit, I give you my interview with Les Claypool for Soundboard Magazine from December 2000. All right, you there? I am here. Great, thanks a lot for calling. Yeah, my last interview went a little long, so... Oh, no problem. Um, have you been doing sort of interviews all morning? No, just two. Oh. Okay, cool. Well, if I start asking things that you've already been asked, just tell me to shut up and I'll move on to the next thing. All right. Um, I wanted to ask you a few questions about about the past before moving on to your current project. Okay. Just a couple things. Um, okay, let's start at the beginning. Were you a strange little boy? Was I a strange little boy? Yes. Um, not particularly. No? Did you, did you, did you fit I guess in? I, was, I guess it depends on how you define strange. Right. Did you fit in with the, with, with the other students? Um, it depended on which students. <laughs> right. You know, um, I think there may have been some that I didn't fit in with by choice. Right. I don't think I was ever really, you know, uh, 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 disconnected from by the others. Um, what what or who made you want to get into music? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, Like uh, you know, 
Yanni Lee and Larry Graham and Rocco Prestia and Stanley Clark, Lewis Johnson. So you think it was just a, the compilation of all the names? Well, it was all that and then starting Primus, which was, you know, a three-piece band with a guitarist that was, you know, very textural. I ended up playing a lot of the rhythm guitar parts and the bass parts at the same time. So that's what sort of got it all going. And, yes. Um, I know that one of your one of your influences is the residents, and I definitely hear I definitely hear an element of them in sort of your lyrics and, and the rhythm of your speech and, and some of your songs. Yes. When were you introduced to them? Uh, it was 1981. A friend of mine, uh, his mother actually was way into the residents, and she played Constantinople for me, and I thought it was the most horrible, wretched thing I'd ever heard. It sounded like music from hell. I thought it was the most irritating music I'd ever heard, but it was strangely compelling, and I just you know. It eventually has stuck to me. Uh, yeah, I often find that the stuff I really hate is what I eventually, like, one of my favorite things. Yeah, I hated the police at first, too. Yeah. And then, you know, now I'm playing with Stuart Copeland. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, as far as as far as far your lyrics are concerned, it's something that I also noticed with the residents in you is that although there's, a, you know, it's very, the lyrics are very absurd, they're very surreal, I... I feel like there's some there there's some sort of seriousness or some sort of message that is is underneath it all. Would you say that's true about your lyrics or? I mean, there's always something are, there, you know. I'm always talking about something. But uh, I mean, are you trying to? I mean, this is not all the time, but are you are you trying to entertain? Sometimes, or are you trying to? I guess the question is. Are you, are you writing things about experiences? Or are you often writing about sort of? Uh, made up fictitious things. So a little bit of everything. Yeah. It, a combination it, of both. It all comes into Yeah, I think anybody who's a creative writer, you know, you have to draw from experience, otherwise, you know, you're, it, it, it's going to come off as being somewhat pretentious. Yeah. It is pretentious. <laughs> as long as you know that. Uh, I, was, I was noticing, I was listening to some of your albums the other day, you, you seem to have some sort of uh, morbid fascination with me. Not really. That's hard to say. No. Yeah. It's. It, it, I think meat is kind of comical. So it is comical. It's comical because there's such a stigma attached to it, you know. Right. So I'm sure that's part of it. All right. Let's talk about your new band. Um, your new band. It's. Would Would it be fair to say that it's been categorized in sort of the jam band category, or is that? No. I mean, we're definitely. lumped into that pile, I'm sure, but um, you know, we're definitely edgier than any of those, any of the other jam bands that I've seen. What, um, what is, what, what other bands have interested you that are in the jam band movement? Well, I mean, Fish, of course, because they're, they're old friends, and they're a good band, and I've been playing with Trey, so, <laughs> uh, um, I like Deep Banana Blackout quite a lot, they're a good band, um, Yeah, um, I mean, there's, there's various groups that aren't necessarily part of the whole jam band scene, but I think the jam band scene is sort of, you know, in a state of defining itself as it is anyway, you know? I mean, it's such a huge, broad term. You know, I mean, Critter's Buggin' is a fabulous band, but you would, you know, before there was before there was anything called the jam band scene, you would consider Critter's Buggin' sort of an avant jazz fusion type thing, you know, with, with you know, loops and whatnot. Has, has improvisation always been a big part of your music, or has it sort of been a gradual progression that is something you've been moving into? 
No, that's always what we did. I mean, it kind of takes me back to the old days when I was in I was in this R&B band that we were about, you know, we had like seven guys in the horn section and the whole bit. We'd play four sets a night, three to five nights a week, you know. Yeah. And um, it was a lot of jamming. Um, and there were some fabulous players, too, you know, some of the only old drummers from Tower Power was in the band, and, you know, some of the horn players went on to, Peter Applebaum was one of the horn players, hieroglyphics. So, um, it kind of takes me back to those days. But, um, and also Primus, you know, of all the bands in that sort of scene, we were, you know, one of the few that would really open up our, our tunes. You know, we'd jam out our tunes quite a bit, and chase the set around every night, all that stuff. So this is just more of a, this is just sort of taking it to the limit for me, you know, I'm out there playing Crimson songs that are, you know, 15 minutes in length, so, at least, you're doing, doing, you know, hour and ten minute sets that consist of five songs. Right. Now, I, I know you've been doing the Animals album in its entirety. Yes. Um, we're going to do that for the last time on the 30th at the Fillmore. That's right. So by the time you get out to Colorado, you probably won't be doing that. We might be doing bits and pieces of it, but we won't be doing it all in its entirety. Now, have you been trying to, um, have you been trying to uh, sort of uh, reproduce it, or has it sort of been using the album, the album to uh, to expand on it and reproduce it? Well, that one we've been playing to the key. All right. As close as we possibly can, you know. Um, but most of the stuff we just expected on. But that album in particular, we we wanted to really nail it. Was there were there other options for something like that, or was Animals the one you had your your heart set on? Were there other things you were throwing around? Well, I've always wanted to play Pigs. It's one of my favorite songs ever, and I had the instrumentation all of a sudden. I had a you know fabulous keyboardist, two guitar players. You know, I had the guys that could do it. And so I said, well, let's play it. And then I thought, shit, you know, we need a we need a second set. Let's just play the whole album. Right. So that's where it came from. Great. I, you know, plus, you know, Fish has been doing that for for years. Going and they'll pick an album and they'll learn it and play it. So. Are Are you? Uh, I mean, in some ways, it could be said you had some similarities to Roger Waters. Are you? A, are you a fan of him, or is it sort of the band in itself? I mean, I love Floyd, and I I love Roger Waters. I just went and saw Roger Waters. You know, this last summer. In the flesh tour. Yeah, it was awesome. I had a great time. I almost, almost, almost cried a couple times. <laughs> I mean, it was awesome. Yeah. I, so I would have loved to have seen. I never got to see Floyd with Roger Waters. I would have loved to have seen that. This cool. He even did like set the controls for the heart of the sun. really awesome. Yeah. Um, so what was the inspiration behind the the, for, the formation of, of Fearless Flying Frog Brigade, and why did you pick those positions? Well, it's sort of been more of a uh, something that's fallen together. You know, I, the whole thing kind of started with me doing the oyster head thing with um, with uh, Stuart and Trey. And since then, I've been getting a lot of phone calls to put together projects for various festivals. And so I put together one for the Mountain Air Fest, which I was going to call the Thunder Brigade because I had two drummers. It was Tim Alexander and Jack Irons and Merv and Skerrick. And... Um, and uh, I was, uh, it was requested by my friend at BGP that Thunder Brigade might be a little too heavy for, for, for this festival, so how about naming it something to do with the frog jumps, because it was Calaveras County frog jumps. And so I said, well, it's called Frog Brigade. 
So that's where that came from. And then um, I did a thing called Rat Brigade out on the East Coast with a couple of the guys from Rat Dog, you know, Jeff and Jay, who have gone on to become, you know, regular Frog Brigade guys. And I just, it just sort of fell together, you know. I hooked up with our old guitarist, Todd Hoof, um, and, um, and then I had run an ad in some local papers looking for musicians, just, you know, trying to get get back into the local scene, and I stumbled across this guy, Enor, who's six and a half foot tall guitar player with, you know, long red dreadlocks. So, he's a monster. So all these guys are just, you know, basically what I wanted to do was find the best musicians I could possibly find. I didn't care what they looked like, what they were into, how they dressed, you know, nothing to do with any type of image or style. Um, just, I wanted the, mo- the most monster musicians I could find, and that's what I've done. These guys are all incredible. So, uh, so what can we expect when you guys get to Denver as far as what kind of music you'll be doing, or is it too, too early to say? Yeah, I mean, we're going to be, the set's different every night, so I don't know what, what we'll be playing, but, um, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty open-ended. Long songs, um, uh, you know, and some incredible musicianship. These guys are all monsters. I mean, if you want to see, you know, uh, one of the most innovative saxophonists on the planet, you're going to see him at that night, you know, Skirik playing with us. Um, an incredible keyboardist, you know, a classically trained jazz pianist who I've got playing Fender Rhodes and analog synths, you know, Jeff Cometti, he's a monster. Um, Jay Lane, one of my favorite drummers on the planet, and I've played with, you know, I've played with some pretty heavy dudes. Um, you know, Todd Hoos, he's the guy that I started Primus with back in 1984, and then Enor, who's just, you know, he's, uh, these guys are all monsters. Right. So, so um, it's, it's music for music. It's not, um, there's no real, you know, has nothing to do with, with uh, any type of style or image or anything. It's just it's music. Are you guys planning up the set list every night, or, do, or is it more you decide as you go? Um, I'll usually write up a set list of, like, you know, five songs. <laughs> and we just kind of take them wherever they go. You know, interweave stuff. It's more, it's more you set a structure and then, and then just kind of bounce around inside of it. Is it, is it a coincidence you're coming to Colorado at the height of ski season? I, I saw that veil was on your itinerary. Well, it's part of the snow core, so. Oh, what is that? Snow core? Yeah. Snow core is a festival that, that sort of follows the, um, it hits all the big, um, like snowboard areas. Are you going to be doing snowboarding yourself in the Well, last we did snow core a few years ago with Primus, and, and I, the first snowboarding day I broke my foot. So um, I'm not sure if I'm going to this time or not. But I'm sure I'll, if I have a day off, I'll get coaxed up to going up the mountain. Yeah. Uh, and there should be a, a, a Rock Brigade live album available by the new year. Is that right? Well, it was supposed to be, but I just finished mixing it yesterday, so it's not going to be quite quite ready in time, um, but uh, I should have it, uh, it'll, it should be with me on tour, right. and um, it, it's going to be available through Artist Direct, okay. so, um, and then it'll be, it probably won't be available in stores till late January.
Um, okay, here's a question for you about just um, the crowds that, that you enjoy playing for. Yeah, um, you enjoy playing for a uh, rocket crowd or a uh, subdued crowd or, or just anything? Um, well, I mean, nobody likes to play for a subdued crowd <laughs> or a bored crowd. Subdued to me is synonymous with bored. You know, yeah, I, I mean, I've been very fortunate. The Primus crowds have always been awesome. You know, they're they're you know sort of a you know thinking man's rocking crowd or whatever. Um, yet they're very energetic. Um, and what I'm getting now is sort of a cross between that and you know these people that are you know sort of bopping around. You know, so uh, it's it's a it's a it's a pretty cool mixture. That's that's that I've that I've got going on right now, so I'm I'm, I'm into it. All right, um, just a few questions. I just want your opinions on a few musicians that you're associated with. Okay. Um, so the first one here, Tom Waits. Uh, well, I mean, Tom was one of my, you know, biggest heroes. So, you know, he's a good guy. He's, you know, he's. How, how did you How did you come to play with him? Um, it was more of just a, you know, a wish that we get him to do the voice of Tommy the Cat, and so we sent him a tape, and, and, and he dug it, so he did it. And we just sort of, you know, grown from there. Um, you've done a couple of Peter Gabriel tunes. He's another one of your inspirations. Yeah. I would love to work with Gabriel someday. That would be an awesome thing. You also, um, I, I read somewhere you're, you, you like Tony Levin's bass playing as well. His, his mm-hmm. playing, I guess. Um, how about, and, and Rush is also another one of your early influences? Yeah, that's pretty much, you know, my um, high school years was, was very much Rush. <laughs> and they're great guys, too. All right, and... Um, who who have you been listening to lately? You know, not necessarily in that the jam band category we were talking about earlier, but who else has been something that you've really been enjoying? Who's new on the scene? Hmm. Well, I just actually just got this Government Mule CD that I really like. Yeah. Sure. Warren Haynes, man, that guy's he's a monster. Yeah. Um, the main reason I got it is because I'm supposed to do this project with him, so I was kind of prompted into getting it, <laughs> so I'd be familiar with his stuff. Right. And he's a monster. So I'm really excited. All right. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks for the information. This has been very helpful. Quite sure. And uh, look forward to seeing you when you come back. Come over to Denver. All right, man. All right. Thanks a lot. Adios. Bye. And we're back. I don't think I'll put the Les Claypool article up on the Facebook page like I did the Elliot Smith article because basically I just did a transcript of the interview for the magazine. Up next, more of Mike's look back at the movies of 2012. I did get to see one of his recommendations from last week. I saw Compliance, which is on Netflix Instant Watch. And I wanted to mention that it it actually is more closely aligned to the real-life events than Mike had originally thought. It's hard to believe that it really happened the way it, uh, it was portrayed in the movie, and apparently there's been quite a strong negative reaction from crowds um, seeing the movie, who who can't believe that it really is based on what what really happened at a at a fast food restaurant in Kentucky? 
I think also that audiences found it to be, you know, like a like a Saw movie or something like that. While what I found to be most important about the movie was it's an exploration of how something so bizarre and unthinkable could really happen, particularly the role that the fast food restaurant manager played in the whole incident, which when I first heard about it, it, it did not make sense to me why someone would, would do these things. The actress Anne Dowd did an excellent job as the manager in the movie and actually made her an arguably sympathetic character. It was really nice to see that she was recognized by the National Board of Review for Best Supporting Actress in 2012. Uh, to me, she could have won an Oscar, and it made me think when I saw this movie so recently after watching the Oscars how unfair and money-driven the whole Oscar nomination process is. Anyways, here's more of Mike. In terms of rounding out the genre films, like the Bond film this year, Skyfall, thought it was good. Thought uh, I got in a little debate with my brother about it, who thought it was basically terrible and very low stakes. And yeah, maybe it was a little lower stakes than most Bond films, but you know, had I'm a big fan of the Daniel Craig Bonds. Had some great scenery in terms of some of the cities, and like Istanbul and other places, and a great theme song, of course, by Adele, and great villain played by Javier Bardem. So would definitely recommend that. Um, Another low-budget uh, genre film this year was a film called The Sound of My Voice about a cult leader who um, ends up convincing a small group that she's from the future. And I won't say any more about this film. It's very, very low-budget. Um, it stars Britt Marlene, who was in Another Earth a few years ago, another great little low-budget genre film, science fiction film that I really enjoyed. And, you know, just got to see it. It's really quite recommended. And while I'm talking about uh, cult leaders, a film that I grappled with this year that I'm not sure I liked was The Master, the Paul Thomas Anderson film starring Philip uh, um, Seymour Hoffman as a L. Ron Hubbard-like cult leader, Scientology-type leader who ends up taking a young World War II veteran under his wing. And I, I really don't know what to make of this film since it's really most most of the scenes are just between Hoffman and... Um, um, what's his name? Um, Phoenix, um, Joaquin, Joaquin Phoenix. And, you know, some great acting in this film. I just don't know what to make of it. It's, you know, if it's a, uh, allegory about Scientology, great, but I didn't get the feeling that that's just what it was about. Um, so definitely see it. I mean, it's see worth seeing alone for the performances. Looking at my list, a few other genre films that I didn't mention before was VHS, a film that makes use of of the old now old-fashioned video formats to horrific ends and found footage format and the innkeepers ty west's latest horror film i thought was pretty good a good old-fashioned ghost story not great but good let's see what else um the loneliest planet was an interesting little film that my wife and i talked about endlessly after we saw it we literally ended up thinking about this film for days on the end on ends. I think probably because we really related to the young couple at the heart of the movie. Uh, basically, a young couple traveling through Georgia, through the Caucasian Caucasus Mountains, and 
one event happens in this movie that I can't tell you because it would spoil the rest of the movie. But this event changes everything in the relationship of this couple. Gabriel Gal, Gal Bernal plays the young man and can't remember the uh, uh, woman actor, the actress who plays the woman. But essentially, one thing unexpectedly happens between the two characters. Not no major drama, no kidnapping, no violence, but one small event that changes everything in their relationship, and it. It'll get you talking. It's a great date movie. I highly recommend you see it with your loved one so you can talk about what would I have done in that situation. <laughs> it's really, we had a lot of fun talking about that. So looking at my list, I've left out a couple of other films on my top 10 just because there's not much I really want to say about them. The uh, Dardenne Brothers, for those of you who know the Belgian brothers who year after year make wonderful social socialist realist films, social realist films basically morality tales about um, everyday people making bad choices. And their latest is called The Kid with a Bike, about an orphan child who ends up attached to a young single hairdresser who resists him and fights, you know, his attachment to her. Um, it sounds rather cliched by that description, but the film is anything but cliched, as all Dardenne films are, and it's definitely worth seeing. I, I would definitely recommend it. Uh, a film that got a lot of controversy this year is Zero Dark Thirty. I'm not going to say much about it because you can probably open up any magazine and read an article about it. But I will say that it was really overshadowed by the debate about torture and the role that torture played in the killing of Osama bin Laden. Um, I, I will say about that, and this is all I'll say about that, that the filmmakers are trying to have it both ways a bit. And I wasn't comfortable with the statements that Catherine Bigelow and Mark Bull have said about how this is a dramatization of the real events and that they have license to make up aspects of the story because they are fiction filmmakers. Um, however, you know, much of the film is based on real events and real people. And yet in the film, it's very clear that torture does play a role in the killing of Osama bin Laden as it did not in reality. So a little bit of having it both ways there, but it is a great film, uh, a great procedural on um, the, the means that the CIA uses to to get Bin Laden and really one character, a, a woman played by Jessica Chastain, apparently based on a real figure in the CIA, who makes it her own personal crusade to get Bin Laden for 10 years. Uh, and the film cul is culminated by a 20 minute night goggle vision sequence of the storming of the Bin Laden's compound in in Abbottabad, 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 I don't know how to say that. <laughs> Uh, Pakistan, and it's amazing. I mean, it's absolutely amazing to see these command, this commando unit storm the compound and see what they go through. It's harrowing. I mean, it's nothing like I thought it happened from the news. I mean, there's there's people gathering on the street. There's a potential for rebellion and and attack from just people on the street. There's chaos of not knowing what's happening. There's dogs coming at you. They're just really amazing. And then you got to stick with it because the scene after it is is really quite something. The, the scene of Jessica Chastain by herself after the job is done and watching her reaction as as her efforts have paid off and Osama bin Laden is killed. It's really, really something else. Uh, the other film that got talked about a lot at the end of the year and is probably on the Oscar list is Lincoln, which I really liked. And I'm not going to say much about it because a lot of people have talked about it. Other than the fact that I went with my family to see this film while en route to D Washington, D.C. To, to see the Emancipation Proclamation, which was on display for one day a year in D.C. 
Um, so really great timing for us to see a film about Lincoln. And my family, they're made up of Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, and every stripe in between. This is a film that we could all agree on and made us all feel proud to be American. And there's very little film, few films that could do that for my family. So if anything, it deserves high praise for the, its ability to bring my family together as it did this year politically. So I will talk about a few harder to find films now um, that may not be available, but that I think are worth seeking out as well. Um, also mindful of my time because uh, I don't want to eat up all the time on this podcast. Um, Seattle International Film Festival happens every year. I always see a ton of amazing films from around the world at the SIF, Seattle International Film Festival. And many every year I see films from Turkey because I'm highly interested in Turkish film. Some great films coming out of Turkey. I visited Turkey 10 years ago, and it always brings back wonderful memories of my trip there. And there were two films this year that played the festival that were quite amazing. Uh, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia and The Future Lasts Forever. Both films extremely slow paced, so not for everybody. Very little happening in this films, these films. The former film, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, is a ostensibly a murder mystery, although there is really no mystery going on here. It's more, more of a philosophical reflection on life and mortality and, uh, and a character study on these, this, these four characters in a car basically searching for where the body's hidden and it's just all full of mood and atmosphere the anatolian hills look amazing in this film uh great sound design great cinematography just beautiful grays and browns and blacks of, of the film stock just a beautiful film to watch but it is three hours and it's very very slow and not recommended for everybody um, but the second film turkish turkish film i saw this year the future lasts forever um, I would recommend to everybody. It's it's a film about a young Turkish ethnomusicologist who is recording these beautiful Kurdish elegies sung by Kurdish widows who've lost their husbands in, as part of the Kurdish fight for freedom. And these elegies are incredible. I mean, they're gorgeous. They're like poems to the departed husbands. The film has amazing music to it. It's got lullabies and hymns. There's one song in there that I had to find after I saw it. It's it's played during the final credits, um, and it's the music's by somebody named Kachatur Avatisian, and it, it. I left that theater stunned. Just the images of the Kurdish widows playing in my mind. Other beautiful symbolic scenes in the film, like a horse that's running in a war zone, and really strong allegorical images. Beautiful music, beautiful imagery. Um, highly recommended. Even. Even for those who may have never seen a Turkish film before, I would highly recommend it. Um, a film that I, I can't really recommend to everybody uh, that I find very uncharacter and uncategorizable is Holy Motors. This is a film by Leo Carac. He's a French filmmaker who's basically been absent from the scene for about 15 years. He's most known for directing The Lovers on the Bridge, which was a huge debacle in France when it came out. Um, massively over budget, didn't make much money. Uh, still quite a good film. And Leo Carat followed that film with an adaptation of a pure, of a, of a, uh, of a Melville novel called Pierre, called Pola X. And here he is 15 years later with this film that I can't even begin to describe to you. It's like a film by Boonwell. It's, it stars his standby, Denis Levant, who's in all of his films. And he plays, Denis Levant plays 11 characters in this film. He plays an actor playing 11 characters. 
acting out vignettes and scenes on the streets of Paris. And it's never clear why he's doing this. You get the sense that he's doing this for an unseen audience, maybe for us, for the audience in the theater. Uh, he's doing this with other actors. He's doing this with non-actors. And among these act, these scenes, he's playing everything from the mundane, a, an old beggar on the street, uh, to highly wrought scenes from a Henry James novel, to a completely batshit crazy sequence in which he plays a feral dwarf who chases through the streets, causing chaos wherever he goes, stealing Eva Mendez, who is, plays a supermodel, eating her hair, uh, kidnapping her and hiding her in his lair as he dresses her in a burqa. I mean, just insane stuff like that. Uh, it's, I think it's a commentary on the cinema itself. I, I don't know what else to make of it other than that. Uh, it's, it references many previous French films, many Hollywood films, uh, musicals, uh, video games, uh, film noirs. It's got all kinds of references going on. And really, it's quite amazing. P pretty interesting to see. I definitely would recommend it. And, uh, I think it's something I, uh, something I maybe wouldn't watch twice, but it's great. It's also interesting in that it's the second film this year about a weirdo in a limousine. The other film is David Cronenberg's Cosmopolis, which I didn't see, but I imagine, uh, is also similarly strange. Let's see. Uh, I'm kind of running low on my time, but just wanted to briefly mention a few other films. Wes Anderson came out with a good film this year, Moonrise Kingdom. Always find it a little bit hard sell to go see Wes Anderson films because his, his style is a little uh, distancing for me. It's a little too stylized. But this one was good. I really like the young couple, the young two leads who, who play the couple at the heart of the film. Um, uh, Oslo, August 30th is a Danish film that came out this year. Uh, actually, not Danish, sorry. It's Norwegian. It's by jo Joachim Trier, the nephew of Lars von Trier, and it's about a heroin addict who is released from rehab and the kind of crazy heroin uh, day and night that he goes through as he's resisting temptation. Um, quite interesting. Elena is a Russian film by the director of The Return and uh, another film kind of like The Kid with a Bike about moral choices and uh, quite interesting to, to see the choice that the woman in the film makes and how she grapples with that choice. Um, pretty much all the films that I loved or really liked this year, there were several that I was mixed on, including The Hunger Games, which I liked, uh, but you know, found it really, really derivative of previous films like Battle Royale and The Running Man and The Most Dangerous Game, um, but liked nonetheless. And Django Unchained, which I'm definitely going to have to see again, because I saw it after Zero Dark Thirty, which wasn't a good idea. I was in quite a mood at that point, and it wasn't a mood for Tarantino. Um, liked the first half, didn't like the second half, but as usual, great music, great soundtrack, great direction, um, you know, some interesting aspects. Um uh, and then there were the films that I hated, which I really won't talk about, but Beasts of the Southern Wilds, just I thought this was such a such a contrived piece of filmmaking. I know people love this film, really fell apart for me. You know, beautiful to look at, but, you know, it's also, I think, an example of poverty porn, kind of like the Slumdog Millionaire film, which I didn't care for, which just, you know, the filmmakers really putting these primitive poor people on display for our... Uh, amusement. At least that was the sense that I got from it. Um, haven't seen The Hobbit yet, although I have mixed feelings about it. And um, and then um, some great documentaries this year, too, that I do want to briefly mention before I finish. Um, I've come from Detroit, and there was a film about Detroit this year called Detropia, uh, 
which is really an amazingly beautiful film all about Detroit's decline. And it's, uh, it shows how, you know, just mile after mile of empty warehouse and buildings and damaged and destroyed buildings and fires and, you know, the, nothing new for Detroiters, but it finds real beauty in this decay. I mean, it's really, a, the filmmakers were really able to create something beautiful. It reminded me of a recent book of photographs of Detroit that came out that was similarly beautiful as well. Um, so I would definitely recommend that. The Queen of Versailles as well it was was great. And if you want to read a hilarious review, check out Patton Oswalt's review of The Queen of Versailles on the Onion AV Club page. Really pretty funny um, stuff there. And there was a great art film called Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry, about this great dissident artist in China, Ai Weiwei. I uh, also saw that soon after seeing an exhibit of Ai Weiwei's work in D.C., so that was fun for me. And then Gerhard Richter, a painter that I've always loved. There's a film called Gerhard Richter Painting, which came out this year, which shows the man at work, and which I thought was uh, quite a great document of an artist at work. So I realize I'm probably over my time, but I wanted to thank you all for listening and for seeking out some great films. I'm sure I'll be back to talk more about some of the great things I've seen, read, or heard this year. Have a great day, and I'll talk to you later. Thanks, Mike. Mike Schwartz can be found on Twitter at HappyWanderer13. Usually I'll give you a couple of recommendations at this point. I just bought the new Bonnie Prince Billy album, which is a duet album with Don McCarthy of the band Fawn Fables. She has done vocals on several of his recordings before. This album is called What the Brothers Sing, and it's all songs recorded by the Everly Brothers. Generally lesser-known tracks. There's no Wake Up Little Susie on here. It's really strong. It um, It's exposing me to music that I had never previously been attracted to. And speaking of music that I was only dimly aware of, what I have really been listening to the most this week has been Kate Bush's Hounds of Love album, specifically the first half, half of the album, which is just great. Not to say that the second half isn't good. I actually haven't listened to it yet. I just keep wanting to listen to the first five songs. And apparently the second half of the album is almost completely a separate work than the first half. So I've been treating it like that and saving it for later. I had some appreciation for Kate Bush previously, but I had kind of been under the impression that she was too mystical or ethereal or strange. Well, I like strange, but maybe too goofy for me. But these songs are very personal, very down-to-earth. I know I'm coming to it a little bit late, but um, I definitely recommend it if you haven't heard it. Um, Running Up That Hill is just the perfect song. Well, that's about it for this week. Follow me on Twitter at Candle underscore ends or on uh, Facebook as Candle Ends. CandleEnds.com is my website. That's Candle hyphen ends. My original songs from the podcast can be found on Bandcamp. This week is a track called You'll Find Me in the Funny Papers. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.
I was looking for a deity on earth as seen on TV on scrambled chills or in between the panels yeah I was a Sunday supplicant with my color supplements spread out before my body on the floor If you want to read about my capers You'll find me in the funny papers Oh Epitaph and comic sense ends everything. 